Hello and welcome to the Soccer History USA podcast. On today's episode, The Magic of the Cups. In the previous episode, I talked about the first quarter of the American Soccer League's 1921-22 season and discussed some of the league's early growing pains. Today, I examine the season at the halfway point and talk about the country's National Challenge Cup competition. The league table remained unchanged, although Philadelphia built on their lead at the top and remained undefeated in league play. The club had scored 37 and conceded just 12 goals in 12 games. Below the top spot, things tightened even more as Todd Shipyards lost some ground, leaving four teams separated by only five points. Fall River and Holyoke were still anchored to the bottom of the table, falling even further behind. The standings stood this way, Philadelphia on top with 22 points, Todd Shipyard second at 17, followed by New York and J&P Coates each at 13, Harrison had 12 points, Fall River 5, and Holyoke at the bottom with just 4. As Philly cruised, the other teams traded wins while beating up on the two bottom dwellers. Todd's Mac attack suddenly went cold in the league, scoring just one in five games after scoring 16 in the previous eight. On November 13, New York blanked Todd 3-0 at the New York Oval. According to the New York Tribune, the New Yorkers never played better football, but at the same time they were favored by the breaks. The home side took the lead at the half-hour mark after a giveaway from the Todd defense allowed Hardy to score from a cross by Tommy Duggan. New York doubled its lead when Tommy Stark scored from the spot after a penalty decision by referee James Schofield. It was probably his last game before disappearing with $1,200 of the Federation's money. The visitors were the better team in the second half, but in the 65th minute, New York left-back Hurd scored from 18 yards, sealing the victory and the two points. The game showed how New York's defense was finally beginning to gel. After giving up nine goals in their first four games, they conceded just five in the next eight. They also managed four clean sheets, including the impressive win over Todd. The sponsor of today's show is Harry Blum's Natural Bloom Havana Cigars. To top the old year, to welcome the new, to seal 21, to meet 22. Smoke a good one, a natural bloom. Even though they remained in fifth place, it was Harrison who made the greatest gains. The club went undefeated in December, scoring 14 and conceding just one. Of course, it helped that the games came against Fall River and Holyoke. Typical was a 5-1 drubbing of Fall River on December 18th. The Jersey boys took the lead after just 20 minutes, thanks to a long shot from midfielder George Post. Just minutes later, John Rabbit Hemingsley scored after great individual effort, and that's how it remained after 45 minutes. Fall River missed a penalty just after the start of the second half, but managed to pull one back in minute 65. It was Hemingsley who restored the two-goal lead before Dave Brown and Jim Ford added late goals to complete the route. 
In addition to the league competition, the ASL clubs also competed in the National Challenge Cup. The year saw a record number of 118 entrants, including 70 in the East Bracket and 48 in the Western one. In general, the ASL clubs proved their quality as the best teams in the East and probably in the country as a whole. They also dominated state cup competitions. New York won the New York State Cup, Harrison captured the New Jersey State competition, and even bottom of the table, Holyoke retained their Massachusetts State Association Cup with a 3-2 win over Abbott Worsted. It wasn't easy, though, as it took 245 minutes of play over two games before the Falcos finally prevailed. In the National Challenge Cup, ASL clubs put each other out of the competition. JMP Coates, for instance, beat Fall River before losing to Holyoke. Todd, the real class of the league teams, defeated New York, Harrison, and handed league leaders Philadelphia their first defeat of the season. Played on Boxing Day, the 4-1 defeat was the Phillies' first in the 1921-22 campaign, and surprisingly, it came at home. 6,000 people cheered the players as they slogged away on a muddy pitch. Harry Radican opened the scoring for the visitors after a goal-mouth scrum. George McKelvey doubled the lead off a corner, and Todd were up two at the half. Philly came out playing hard and had their best spell of the game before scoring shortly after the restart. A handball in the box led to a penalty converted by Radican. One of the Mac attack, reports differ as to exactly who, scored the fourth, and Todd advanced. And now for some headlines from Off the Pitch. Judge Webster Thayer denied two motions for a retrial in the case of Nicolas Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti. The two had been convicted a few months earlier in the murder of a paymaster and his guard during the robbery of a shoe factory in Braintree, Massachusetts. 12,000 milk wagon drivers voted overwhelmingly to strike after an uproarious meeting at Madison Square Garden in New York. The drivers walked out after distributors refused demands of a $5 a week hike in wages and two weeks annual vacation time. Deliveries have been suspended in New York City, Jersey City, Hoboken, and other territories up to the Massachusetts state line. Japanese Premier Hara Takashi was assassinated in Tokyo. Hara was the first commoner and the first Christian to be prime minister. He was en route to a meeting of his political party when he was stabbed on the train platform by a 19-year-old railway worker. In sports, football coaches from around the country met to form the American Football Coaches Association. The gathering involved 100 men, including the coaches of Rutgers, Columbia, Harvard, as well as from Minnesota, Texas, and Stanford. Among the motions adopted unanimously was the belief that professional football was a detriment to the game and should be actively discouraged. In the Eastern Final, the Brooklynites faced Abbott Worsted, who had knocked out Holyoke in the semifinals, and just squeaked by, earning the right to face Western winners Skull and Steel in the final. According to Dave Lang, Skull and Steel was the best team in St. Louis during the 1920s. The company had been founded in 1898, and by 1919, around the time they formed a soccer club, employed about 3,000 people. The final was held on March 19, 1922, at High School Field in St. Louis. Despite heavy rains before kickoff, 9,000 fans showed up to cheer on the home side. As the game kicked off, 
it soon became apparent that Todd had the upper hand. Playing a quick, short passing game despite the muddy pitch, the visitors made the steel men look lethargic and overmatched. Todd's dominance was rewarded when Jack McGuire scored the opener off of a deflection. McGuire doubled his tally two minutes later after dribbling into the box and scoring from 15 yards with a lovely shot. At this point, it looked like it might turn into a rout, with only the yeoman defending of the Skull and, Ski- of Skull and Steel players Brady, Bentley, and Olerman keeping the home team in the game. Against the run at play, Scullin scored in the 37th minute, cutting the lead in half. After conceding two goals in the first 20 minutes, Skull and Steel managed to hold firm until the first half whistle, and the score remained 2-1 in favor of the visitors. The stats demonstrated the dry dockers' dominance. Todd had 16 shots on goal and nine corners in the first half alone. After the restart, however, the game changed. The Steelmen began to assert their superior conditioning. Using a long ball approach known as the American style, they soon began to win the battles and assert their will on the game. The equalizer came with less than 20 minutes remaining in the game, and the match seemed to be headed to a tie. In minute 86, however, Elmer Schwartz blasted a shot into the top corner, giving giving Skull and Steel the title. The St. Louis team was just the second All-American-born team to be national champions. The game was not without controversy, however. Some Todd players claimed to have been threatened and intimidated by fans, although an investigation found no evidence to support the allegations. The referee's report did, however, record that a Skull and Steel player told the referee that that if his side didn't win, the officials would never make it off the field alive. Nevertheless, the results stood and Skull and Steel were national champions. As the ASL continued into the home stretch of its first season, a few questions remained. Would anyone be able to challenge Philadelphia's dominance? If so, which of the four clubs still in contention would raise their game? Finally, who would be player of the season and who would make the team of the year? Find out the answers to these questions in the next Soccer History USA podcast. Sources for today's program included Dave Lang's Soccer Made in St. Louis, Colin Joseph's The American Soccer League, and the Spalding Soccer Football Guide. Additional information came from the New York Tribune, www.bethlehemsteelsoccer.org, and the archives of the New York Times. Music from archive.org. Thank you for listening to the Soccer History USA podcast. For more information, visit www.soccerhistoryusa.org and follow me on Twitter at Soccer History US. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. If you enjoy the show, please consider leaving a review at iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Thank you.